0: We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer, who directed The Great Awakening, Bo Roberts.
1: Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. How are you tonight? I'm doing fantastic. How about you?
2: I'm doing well, Dad. I'm doing well. We're in the middle of a blizzard where we are, but warm and safe.
0: It's what we like to hear. So, Bo... I'm sure you probably know this if you've listened to an episode or so before. With any of our new guests, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So, first up, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies.
1: I love movies to the point that uh, I make them. I directed my uh, my first feature last year, and um, now that that's you know being distributed and kind of, uh, I'm beginning to get a bit more hands off with it um i had been working in that lighting department on uh large scale movies and stuff like that and then um i'm actually going to be the director of photography for uh, a feature in april and then i'm working as a key grip which is in the lighting department again uh, so i'm doing all of that just because i love the craft of filmmaking and i just love to be on set and be around it so that's how much I'm into movies, and I'm a big fan of watching movies. And I I definitely prefer movies over TV shows because it's just more succinct. And I think it's for me being a gamer back in the day. All my buddies would play Final Fantasy, and it's just this endless route that you're on. But for me, I'm like, let's put put in Halo. I can jump in, and within ten minutes or you know one match, you know that's that round, and that's what it is. So watching a movie having that shorter form is something that you know i just you know i just naturally go towards more and yeah and movies are just special because to me it's kind of a time capsule on how you can watch this movie and you have a very good sense of kind of what was happening around that time and uh trends and you know it's yeah it's kind of like journalizing life in a sense
0: I should mention that your directorial debut is currently available on Tubi for anyone in the United States. So if you wanted to check that out, go there. So our second primary question, and this is one we've gotten a variety of different answers, and usually it's not just one movie, but what is your favorite movie and why?
1: My favorite movie is Bronson because there is uh, an aspect of a hyper-contrasting style to where you see the harsh, gritty prison system lifestyle. But often enough, it's mixed. The, the, compo- the uh, composer on it, Johnny Jewell, like he has a lot of overtures and a lot of classical music playing all throughout it. So to have that hyper-contrast on screen and just the overall execution of it to where uh, you have a one-man show where Tom Hardy is uh, self-narrating, Uh, his journey, but then you have very interesting usage of um, like stock photos for him to tell a story. But then you have some of his artwork later on in life that, um, you know, the way it plays with what's on screen at that moment. So it's just the way that they keep changing up the style of kind of what you're looking at on screen. But even though there's always something new, there is this undercurrent of consistency, So you can have Tom Hardy in prison and you see nothing but the iron bars in front of him, behind him and so on and so forth. But then when you get out and you go to his uncle's house, which is very lavish and kind of swanky looking, the wallpaper, their bars is vertical lines. So everywhere he goes outside of being in prison, he's encompassed with like bars, horizontal, vertical to always make him look like he's jammed packed into a cell. So there's that underlying consistency but then they just repackage scenes to where it looks unique to that scene.
0: And our last question, which you've kind of already answered a little bit, and most people do, but what makes a good movie for you and why?
1: What makes a good movie for me is I'm definitely attracted to the obscure type of movies. So Ichi the Killer, Tetsuo, The Machine Man, Antichrist, uh, you, you just have this entire genre of you know, it's like movies that really delve into surrealism. So for me, I'm very used to the movie making process. And I've definitely seen a lot of movies that I'm like, okay, you're doing it kind of by the book and very expected beat points. So for me, uh, a movie that jumps out to me is if you can make me guess and wonder what's coming next.
0: Something that's more surprising for you than a paint by numbers type situation so okay then let's delve into your selection for the evening and you selected your favorite movie Bronson so tonight for our 153rd episode we will discuss the biographical movie Bronson from 2009 directed and written by Nicholas Winding Refn co-written by Brock Norman Brock starring the aforementioned Tom Hardy Matt King as Paul Daniels James Lance as Phil Danielson Amanda Burton as Charlie's mother, Kelly Adams as Irene Peterson, Juliet Oldfield as Allison, Jonathan Phillips as the prison governor, Mark Powley as prison officer Andy Love, and Hugh Ross as Uncle Jack. Recognition for this movie, Bronson was wide released on March 13, 2009, after originally debuting at the BFI London Film Festival in 2008. The film grossed roughly 2.3 million on an estimated budget of 230,000. Bronson is a mostly true biographical film of the so-called "quote most violent criminal" in the UK, and reviews at the time were mostly positive, specifically citing Tom Hardy's work as the title character as being what stood out. Bronson currently holds a 76% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 71 score on Metacritic and a 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Bo, this is your favorite. You've already mentioned it a couple of times. I don't think we kind of need to go into the selection process for this for you. But the one question that I saw a lot in doing the research for this movie was, is this movie exploitative of Charles Bronson? I guess, what's your take on that?
1: As far as exploiting him, like the, the way he's been modeled to be, I think he would actually be very proud. And uh, he, he's actually mentioned because uh, when the movie came out, he was not allowed to, to watch it, but eventually the prison system gave in and let him watch it. And he only had good things to say about it. Tom Hardy actually met with him a few times to work on character development. And he, he was so honored with the, uh, you know, with the preparation that Tom Hardy did to become him that after seeing the transformation he went through he literally shaved off his uh, handlebar mustache and sent it to production so tom hardy could use it as the the prop mustache on set he was that proud of of it so from what i would assume his response would be is he's fine with it but from the perspective of uh, making a movie for profit Does Tom Hardy, is he being cut in on the percentages because he is a prisoner and there is supposed to be some kind of a law in place to where if somebody's in prison, they can't profit off of a movie made about them. Or there is some kind of a law that would be interesting to look into, but that, you know, could swing the conversation back the other way.
2: What you're doing is, is you're taking somebody's nature the way they are and using it for your own personal enjoyment and that's what exploitation is in this fashion. I mean, this guy, quite frankly, is an evil person who is only happy when he's either in comf- or in co- the confines of a prison and being violent to the point where he feels like he has some control of his environment by attacking the system. And while that in and of itself he's in control of, we're taking this, I guess the word would be prurient interest in his behavior for our own personal indulgence and, and entertainment. And so that's what makes it exploitive. We're taking his being and using it for our own personal enjoyment. I don't think he cares. Uh, I think he actually enjoys the fact that he has achieved this level of infamy that he sought and, and is discussed in the film or is quote Or one of the opening lines is talking about how else is he going to be famous? I think it gives him exactly what he wants. But I, I, you know, this is from a sign of violence, whereas opposed to some actors or actresses use uh, sex or nudity in order to convey or to advance their careers. He's basically using his own violence in order to achieve his stated purpose.
1: Yeah. And yeah, he, he was a bare knuckle boxer before he was 18, I think. And actually he challenged like the champion in, in the area. And it sounds like the, the guy dodged him, but then he, he went to prison for the armed robbery stuff. So as far as exploiting him to me, if you're going to make a biographical film on anybody, really, you are exploiting aspects of that character because it's like, uh, all right, look, you you're on screen for like 10 minutes it's an hour and a half long movie but you'll have like 10 minutes of screen time what are we really trying to drive home that people walk away feeling like they have a sense of who you are when they met uh bronson it's like he's proud of being violent yeah there's um a time that he did a illegal fight to where he fought a uh a rottweiler dog and um he's said that's like basically the one thing that he feels bad about doing but you know as far as uh, the rest of the fights and stuff he's just it's whatever
2: this isn't that much more exploitive than say the uh film nominated for an academy award elvis i mean we're exploiting elvis's image and elvis's persona for our own entertainment again so i think it's the same type of thing
0: see i look at that one as very different To me, because of how that film came about, it's almost like when LeBron James put out a documentary on himself. The Elvis family or the Presley family had so much of a hand in trying to craft the narrative of that movie that I don't really look at it nearly in the way that this was somewhat separate. And yes, they did talk to Charles Bronson and they had some additional material That they shared with him, he got to contribute a little bit here and there. You mentioned the mustache, which was in my notes, along with a couple of other things I'll mention here in the Did You Know section. But it's not nearly to the level where they're crafting their own narrative. In this movie, he's not really crafting his own narrative. He got the benefit of what the narrative became because of the movie. But it's not necessarily something that he could choose if that makes sense. And that's why I look at those a little bit differently. But I do agree on the standpoint that a lot of these biographical films could be put in the same light. Anything that's kind of nonfiction storytelling could be seen as exploitative.
1: Right. And yeah, definitely having control over the project, that is one thing. But from the time you go to camera, and through the time that you get through post on it, it can be it can become something entirely different with a whole new narrative. Like this movie uh, I worked on last year, I watched it. I was on set every day and now I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh, they've completely killed a character. Like this dude was on set for about four out of 10 days, I think. 10 or 15 days. And um, he is nowhere to be seen. The dialogue isn't disrupted. So, you know, that this guy showed up. To work and be on the movie but then it was like uh he he's not working with a story just erase that character and just recut it so you have a lot more power in the cutting room so it really comes down to the Priestley family with elvis do they sign contracts saying you're not gonna discuss this this is a no-go uh we want to emphasize his good qualities this and that you know so you have that conversation but then do they do that with bronson Yeah. So it's very interesting, but as far as him being exploited, it's, uh, to me, it's almost a mute point now that he's seen it and he's like extremely happy with it. Like it's a point of pride for him. So it was like, it worked out as the ultimate gift. It's far less different than, you know, like you have a lot of very non PC movies that was a sign of the times, uh, was it birth of a nation and, uh, to me, that's exploitive because that's like that's really on a on a truly different level. Whereas contacted him, said, We want to do a movie about your life, he says, Okay, you have the green light, and then they start doing it, and then he helps the lead character get in the character, and then he um, helps talk to the director and get him in the ballpark. So to me, going from that type of ping pong back and forth versus something like Birth of a Nation. To me, that's why I'm like, uh, I I wouldn't really consider this to be exploitive.
0: You make a definitely good point on the editing portion of this. The one other thing that I wanted to kind of mention or at least discuss generally about the film, given the kind of log line for him as the most violent criminal in the history of the UK. Although I do find it very striking that he never actually kills anyone He's (laughs) always threatening to kill people, but he never actually does. And so that does make a distinction for me with this character in this movie. But is this celebrating violence? I know there are a lot of films all over the place that are celebrating violence, particularly with some action films. We just covered John Wick two weeks ago. I would say that to a degree celebrates violence. But is this... Celebrating real violence because I think when you think of some of these greater action films, they're kind of understood to be so outside the bounds of what reality is that you can kind of dismiss the level of violence that is in them because it's a fake world. Whereas this is actually something that's based in our present, our reality of now,
1: right? And yeah, like there definitely is the aspect of celebrating violence because it's a movie about most violent prisoner right so um yeah it, it, it's definitely on that note but in the same breath like that's to me that's culture all across the board at every age and stuff like that to where immediately celebrating violence give me an example if i ask that question to somebody they're probably going to say oh hostile and all of these gore porn movies you know that's all that's violence and stuff like that and i'm like yeah but do you enjoy watching Agatha Christie, Miss Marple, this 80-year-old investigative lady that walks around solving murder cases? How is Agatha Christie not celebrating violence? What you're saying is detached because it has more of that kind of, a uh, like Iron Man. That movie is like, it has a lot of family-friendly violence. You see people get messed up, but like you said, it's detached. So for Bronson, it seems like, The aspect of it also being in that same category as iron man but the amount of realism they pull into it because it is based on a true story it makes it hit on a different way so i wouldn't say it's celebrating violence any more than all of these other movies but the packaging of it makes you feel the effect of it quite a bit more because of the realism
0: well, the one thing that I would be maybe concerned about in the telling of this man's tale is is whether by way of basically putting him on screen, you're seeing him as somewhat of a hero, even if it's somewhat of an anti-hero, that he could be celebrated or rewarded that these types of people get a certain level of infamy they wouldn't otherwise have for being this violent. and. I don't mean to necessarily lock it in stone that that's what this film is unintentionally doing, but I'll highlight, for an example, the movie Wall Street. That was originally made to show the underbelly of what was going on in the late 80s with Wall Street bankers, but it also became somewhat of a promotional film for people to join Wall Street banks. And a lot of people keep coming up to Oliver Stone on almost weekly basis during the 90s and saying, you inspired me to become a Wall Street banker. And that's what I see as the potential slippery slope here.
2: I I don't see that. I see that what this is is a presentation of somebody as they really are. And it's a characterization of evil, not as much of of violence. I, I think this is much less violent and celebrative of violence than, say, John Wick, which just seems like they go out of their way to find a way to shoot somebody in the head. When you start thinking about all the exploitive films of the 70s and 80s, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Friday the 13th, where they just create scenarios in order to execute violence. This is really a story about somebody and an expose about how there are just some people that exist that are so outside the norm of culture and of normal human behavior that we don't know what quite to do with them. And that's what I think this is more about than celebrating violence itself. So, Bo, what do you think this movie is about?
1: The story of um, Charles Bronson and kind of his, his life up until when they uh, stopped shooting the movie. So that on the surface is what it's about. But there is a very interesting note of a lot of his violent outbursts happened shortly after people just trying to tell him you know, what to do or not so much what to do, but like anytime he has to think or talk about the future, he locks up. I think when a lot of people say they would prefer to, to be alone, living in a cabin in the woods somewhere, I think he's like the MO for that. You know, there's kind of this very interesting, almost struggle for identity to where it's like, what are you going to do? What do you want us to do? What are you going to do from here? And then Jack says, hey, ambition, like you need to think ahead, I'm trying to drop that hint. So it's it shows up through the script periodically, these things that I group into being like a struggle for identity.
0: It's interesting that you would pick out identity in this because I came at it from a standpoint of there really isn't a audience avatar in the movie itself, unless you're going the audience itself because a lot of this movie is done through fourth wall breaking direct to camera speech work. And so I think the audience is just supposed to represent the audience, maybe in a representation form when he kind of is talking to the vaudeville theater, you know, about half of the time that he's doing the narration. To me, this has a voyeuristic nature to it in that we're viewing somebody to bring in a Freudian term that is all id but no ego or superego. He's responding to every impulse of his nature without necessarily thinking beyond what the consequences or decision-making will bring him.
1: That's a great thought, by the way.
2: People have a tendency to want to play social worker. Somebody is in prison because of a troubled background or something that happened to them or they have some sort of mental illness, This is a story where it's basically, it's not there. I mean, this is just somebody who is evil for pure evil's sake, has no bones about being evil, likes being evil and violent, and there's no explanation. And it kind of puts those of us who always are looking for those explanations on the defensive because it makes us uncomfortable because... We have a tendency to not believe people can actually be like this for no reason. And I think that's what this movie is about. Is to, It's supposed to make us a little uncomfortable that this guy exists.
0: Well, but then you have to show the darker sides of life sometimes. And I do think that art is reflective of ourselves. We're supposed to see ourselves in art. Otherwise, it's really not art. And by at least showing us the darker sides of our nature, even though this guy is a hyper-realized version of what we could be if circumstances were different, it's still telling us that there are people in the world like this guy. So let's dig in a little bit more into the background of the movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us?
2: Yes. Michael Gordon Peterson comes from a stable, middle-class family in Britain. Yet he starts his adult married life by committing a crime leading to a sentence of seven years in prison. While in prison, he rebels and spends the next several years between the psychiatric hospital, in prison, and in solitary confinement. With a release from prison, he soon becomes a bare-knuckle boxer at the urging of an old prison mate who dubs Peterson with the new name Charles Bronson. Finding his way back to prison, he undertakes a series of violent endeavors, each more violent and bizarre. Will Bronson be broken? Will he break the system? Or will no one win in this game of violence versus conformity to the rules? Thank you. Did
0: you know? Charles Bronson was not initially allowed to see the film, but said that if his mother liked it, that would be enough for him. According to Reffin, his mother loved it. However, in 2011, Bronson was finally allowed to see the film and called it theatrical, creative, and brilliant. Did you know? The line, it was absolute madness at its very best, was actually written by Charles Bronson himself for the film and told to Nicholas Winding Refn during one of their phone calls. Did you know? Nicholas Winding Refn was not allowed to meet Charles Bronson in person since he is not from Britain, but was allowed to have two phone calls with him. Tom Hardy met with Bronson several times and the two became good friends. Bronson was impressed with how Hardy managed to get just as muscular as he was and how well he could mimic his own personality and voice. Bronson has stated he believes Hardy was the only person who could play him. Did you know? Bronson is occasionally seen wearing a small pair of shades. These are not an accessory. According to the real-life Bronson, his years in poorly lit solitary units so damaged his eyesight that he required darkened lenses just to read. Did you know? Although Michael Charles Bronson Peterson thoroughly enjoyed the film, he did criticize the portrayal of him as an avid enthusiast of prison life. He has gone on record to state that he absolutely hates prison and suffered physical and mental trauma from his time served. And with that, we will take our first break of the show, and we will be right back. Before we get back to the show... Next week, we will be discussing our annual Oscars predictions for 2023, as well as giving you a preview of our annual Oscars bet. Make sure you are subscribed to our feed so that you get next week's Can't Miss episode. Gentlemen, we have best performance up. Dad, do you want to start us out?
2: Well, can there be any questions, Tom Hardy? I also have Hardy.
1: I have Tom Hardy with an honorable and very probably underrated performance by the composer, Johnny Jewell. Every scene, back to the hyper contrast, to take that type of violent prison life and mix it with a classical overture. And yeah, like the, the sound to me is probably the my second favorite thing about the movie.
0: Yeah, I can certainly understand that. The musical flourishes on this really do add a certain emotion that I wouldn't think otherwise would be there. But it's really hard not to go for Hardy because of how central he is to the narrative. Most of the time of this film is spent almost in a one-on-one battle between us and him, trying to figure his character out while he also tries to figure us out as an audience. And so it's this kind of intricate dance between two people, the audience and Hardy, and I think he just takes up the screen. He's also my most charismatic. Uh,
1: yeah, for me, most charismatic. I actually put down Matt King, who um, he was the character of Paul Daniels, the, the guy that owned the nightclub that got him into fighting the, the way that guy just is on camera. He's just so like too cool for school <laughs> and, and the stuff he says and his line delivery. Yeah, I thought he was dripping in charisma.
0: I'll give a special honorable mention, though, to James Lance as the art teacher, because I I knew immediately, I knew this guy from somewhere and I couldn't place him, so I had to look him up, but for anybody that is a Ted Lasso fan, he is Trent Crimm of The Independent.
1: Yep.
2: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: and, and you can watch a movie and uh, watch him learn Spanish.
2: <laughs> and
0: do this weird Spanglish. <laughs> Dad, who was your... Uh, Best
2: secondary. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, I still don't know how you made this film on a $230,000 budget. He had to have some really good advanced people looking for scene location because you weren't going to have a lot of money to be putting in the sets. And uh, he seemed to have a way of presenting it and putting it together and doing it in a way that the uh, action was consistent And he had a a mechanism, I guess, with the lighting that seemed to, when the violence was about to happen, it seemed like the the, uh, scene became progressively darker until the explosion. I don't know if that was just me or (laughs) anticipating or feeling that, or if that was real. But either way, I think it was excellent camera work and direct.
1: This movie is creative enough where I think that Reffing, he, he would definitely give his uh, director of photography the green light to work with his gaffer to set up certain lighting gags to accentuate certain lighting cues. That's a huge part. And uh, there is a this uh, project that I'm currently on the first draft of, my next script, the entire movie revolves around like the lighting of the movie. Yeah, like lighting is a huge part and it can be more subtle, just like you said. Like you slowly descend into a darker moment and then it, you have this big pop of light right as the action pops off. And that really, you know, it's jarring and it really adds to the emotion of the scene.
0: Well, one of the things that really struck me about it as far as his involvement, and I also had him as my best secondary performance, not just for the direction, but also for the writing portion of this, is. Early on in the film, several of the key scenes where he becomes overly aggressive and violent are in red. And there's often the notion or the idiom of seeing red when you just kind of lose consciousness and start violently outbursting. And I think that's a good representation of what happened in that. I think they forego it through most of the second half of the film when it's just kind of a staple of his character by that. But at least early on in that cold opening scene, which still sticks in my mind and was my nominee for most indelible. There's that whole scene where it's just in red, but he's fighting all the guards the first time. And that's just so distinctive to how to present that character as you're kind of first being introduced. oh who is your secondary performer?
1: Johnny Jewel is the uh, the composer is my secondary performance. Okay,
0: that was your back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Dad, who is your most charismatic?
2: I had Tom Hardy. He, he seems to have a, uh, an ability when he's on camera to just draw your attention. And as an actor, that's just a quality that you really want to have.
0: I'll highlight one specific portion, and again, in the opening portions of this film. One of the reasons I found him charismatic, his smile directly to camera draws you in. He's got that movie star quality smile. That while you know there's an intensity behind the eyes, you still can't help but like him, even though he's a terrible person.
2: I saw a little piece today that said, a true smile is done with your eyes, not with your lips. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And he has that ability.
0: So let's move to best scene then. I have six nominees. So I already mentioned the cold open combat with the guards. That's kind of all in red. I think that's one of the more notable parts of this film. I have the psychiatric hospital escape. If you can call it an escape, he tries to choke out the one other, I guess, inmate in there. Then I have Uncle Jack's cocktail party that we've also mentioned before. The bare knuckle fighting ring. The art class, which we've kind of mentioned. And then Bronson taking Danielson hostage, which is his art teacher. Because I think that's also a notable part of the movie. I'm sure there are pieces that I've missed. Since this is your favorite, bow, what are the big pieces that I missed for scenes?
1: My favorite scene uh, specifically is the one-man show when he self-titles it When Murder Goes Wrong. And he walks across the stage and he does a one-man, long, one-take cut to where he's speaking to his parole officer And he says his line, and then he pivots and does a 180, revealing the other half of his body. The other half of his body is done up in almost like an anime effeminate type of makeup. uh, Very cartoonish, though. Um, And he has long um, fire engine red painted fingernails. And he just pivots back and forth in doing that. And that really calls back to, you know, like when uh, I was working on camera and then like the movies I like to watch, like I, I'm, I'm a big fan of giving actors their space and giving them their time to flex their muscle instead of a lot of quick cuts. Like the the movie I directed, the great awakening, there is a long looking straight down the barrel uh, monologue from Shakespeare that goes on for 25, 30 seconds maybe. And I'm like, Oh, it's not going to be for everybody, but that's something I'm a big fan of because I'm like, oh, this is, you know, her her first movie as a lead character. I'm going to give her a monologue and I'm not going to cut away or do anything. To me, it's like a big sign of uh, respect for the talent that's on camera. So I I think that's probably why that scene's my favorite.
2: I have the actually the uh, same best scene. I mean, just the sheer fact of the precision that Tom Hardy was able to do to go from one character and flip 180 to a different character almost flawlessly. It was um, a a real artistic flair and something that just seemed to really work really well.
1: Mm -hmm. And just to add on to it, uh, to go back to my honorable mention of the composer, but the music that changes, it goes from a very threatening insidious sounding, you know, horror music when it's Tom Hardy. But then he instantly turns in, he's now the nurse. And it has like a nursery rhyme type of baby melodic sound to it. And then it cuts back to Bronson and it just as quick as he changes, it changes back to the, you know, really intense, threatening music.
0: I had down the art class. That one stuck with me for a little bit because I think that's a lot of the Hitchcock theory on suspense. You get introduced to the art teacher and him running up and down the stairs, but in kind of a weird fashion that he's very whimsical. And then he's sliding down the railing and he's doing all of these weird movements. And then you finally get to Hardy and you could just kind of watch him starting to boil a little bit. And it releases with some tension there when the art teacher gets him to laugh, but you know, there's a simmering underbelly where Tom Hardy's annoyed with this guy. And it's only going to take one small thing to just push him over the edge and really like take this guy hostage and be violent again. And so I really liked the work of that scene because a lot of it is in longer takes, as you mentioned before, but it's on Hardy's face as he's sitting at the table and you can just see his expression where things are going on around him. But the entire take is still set, looking at Hardy. And you'll occasionally look at what he's drawing or whatever else, and it'll slightly cut away from him. But most of the scene after that initial portion is on him and how he's emoting. And so that one really stuck out for me. It's also my favorite scene. So, Bo, you said you had a different favorite scene?
1: I do. So my favorite scene is the um, scene after he takes the librarian hostage in his uh, cell. And that scene begins with uh, uh, Bronson in a straight jacket. He has this weird mouth gag on. Governor walks in and he says, I need to make sense of what has to be done to stop this taking of my hostages, attacking my officers. And I'm not in the habit of cutting deals with prisoners, but you know, I'm just trying to make sense of how we can work something out. So you'll stop doing this, but don't be confused. You're going to be punished again fully. But, um, you know, moving forward, how can we avoid this? What do you want us to do? And again, that's when Bronson just looks at him, says, fuck off. (laughs) It's just, so it, it goes back to anytime somebody asks him a question, or like that, you know, just that interaction, he just responds in a hyper aggressive manner to where it's like, I don't care what you're going to do. I don't care about what you want to do. It's like he's just existing and then people come up and interact with him and they, you know, make these usual comments that just seem to kind of push him over the edge. But yeah, so that scene to me, it really showed how, it, you know, it's like he's not trying to be comfortable. He's not looking for peace and serenity or whatever. Like that's not what that scene represents. He's just not going to be reckoned with. He's just kind of an agent of chaos. And to me, that scene really shows it because he finally got like the prison system to break and ask him, what is it going to take to make you stop this? And he said, fuck off. So to me, that really solidifies his character As somebody that, you know, he wakes up and chooses violence, he's not going to stop. It doesn't matter what you do. It's just, this is how he is.
2: Dad, what's your favorite scene? Actually, mine is the boxing scenes towards the middle because there's black comedy throughout. I mean, just the sheer stupidity. You know, when you see the dog, you just kind of roll your eyes and going, really? And then you realize this is basically supposed to be black comedy and so in music you have a bridge i think these scenes are a bridge between periods of black violence and evilness that this is just kind of a way to let loose some tension and you should kind of chuckle a bit because of course beating up humans and maiming them no problem but you know a dog (laughs) okay
0: there are people in this country that care more about animals than people so it's not unusual most indelible moment for you i already gave mine with the uh, cold open struggle in the red
2: mine the art teacher kidnapping i I, that's just so bizarre and i will always whenever i hear this the name of this remember the art teacher with the uh paint and the eyes painted in on his eyelids and it just was so creepy.
0: Bo, did you have a different, most indelible moment?
1: Uh, I do, uh, but for a different reason. So my favorite indelible moment is when Bronson and the art teacher walk down that long hallway and meet with the governor. So remember uh, when I was talking about how I view a lot of the movie having to do with identity about you know how he's being his true self and um the way he's responding though when people ask about the future is like he's only in the moment he's he struggles to make sense of what's happening down the road struggling not because he's incapable but struggling because I don't think he's thinking about it so it's not that he doesn't have the ability it's just he's here and now and nothing else so when he puts the bowler hat and um you know the the guy has a green apple in his mouth. Back to the governor, saying, "Oh, I hear you're this budding Magritte, great artist, whatever kind of guy." That is an iconic painting from an artist. Last name is Magritte. It's called the Son of Man, and the Son of Man. But the primary interpretation being on that painting alone is how people hide their true identity to fit into society. So you have a w- well dressed man, but you have this big green apple. Obstructing his face, so for the governor to like, he foreshadowed it. He said, "You are a budding Magritte," and then the way Bronson put his artwork in—you know—actually into life is he personified it by turning the art teacher into the Magritte painting. So, to me, like how subtle that is—that's that's awesome.
2: That is
0: a good spot to take our second break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of the show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the greatest movie of all time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 146 movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week?
2: Yes, uh, Tom Whitlock, uh, either 68 or 69. He was an American songwriter. Uh, He did Danger Zone, Take My Breath Away, and Winner Takes All. So for Top Gun fans, at least of the original movie, he has some significant importance. Jansen Panettiere, 28, American actor, brother of Hayden, was in Secrets of Jonathan Sperry, The Perfect Game, and Robots. Barbara Bosson, American actress, best known for Hill Street Blues. She was also in the last Starfighter and Murder One, six-time Emmy nominee. She was a uh, Ferrello's ex-wife in the show Hill Street Blues. Tim McCarver, 81, American baseball player uh, with the Cardinals, Phillies, and uh, was broadcaster with Fox Sports. Had actual movie credits for Moneyball, Fever Pitch, and The Naked Gun, playing himself in cameos.
0: He defined so much of the early portion of when I was truly a baseball fan before kind of the game started to evolve into a place where. It's just not nearly as enjoyable. But the 2001 World Series, the 2002 World Series, the 03 and the 04 series, I just remember watching those so much with him and Joe Buck and all the big moments from all four of those series that are just kind of seared into that moment in history for me. And uh, so he was a big part of when I was growing up in kind of middle school and grade school.
2: Oh, I can go back further, which is Joe Buck's father, Jack Buck. And we talk about, I cannot believe what I just saw. So, all right. We also lost Richard Belzer, uh, 78, American actor and comedian, author, Homicide, Life on the Street, Law and Order, Special Victims Unit, and The Flash. Um, He had written a book that I actually I had read uh, about two or three years ago, talking about Uh, all of the individuals who witnessed the Kennedy assassination in Dealey Plaza and their bizarre murders. He was a, a Kennedy assassination enthusiast.
0: Yeah, he might be one of the most recognizable TV figures from the last 30 years. I mean, SVU is still going, and I think that show has to be like 20 years old at this point. And he was already a staple of a previous show, as you mentioned, Homicide. Before that, so uh, a long time TV character cop, and uh, unfortunately,
2: gone. Yes, he was a huge comedian in the '70s. In fact, he was the warm-up comedian '75 for first season of uh, Saturday Night Live, and he was close friends with Lauren Michaels, the producer. And Lauren Michaels had promised him an opportunity to join the cast at some point and reneged on that promise, according to Belzer, and they were estranged for pretty much the last 30-some years. Uh, And then lastly, we have Stella Stevens, 84, American actress. Uh, She was in Girls, 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 uh, the original Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis, and uh, The Poseidon Adventure.
0: And so we take a moment here to recognize all those we've lost for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines, funniest lines. I will start out. Bronson, you don't want to be trapped inside with me, sunshine. Inside, I'm somebody nobody wants to fuck with. Do you understand? I am Charlie Bronson. I am Britain's most violent prisoner. I always like a good summation line. Bo, did you have a quote down?
1: I do. Um, and these are more statements or like a short scene. But yeah, for the best line I have, Uncle Jack, when he says, Ladies and gentlemen in ladies attire, recently relieved of her majesty's pleasure. Here's my, was it, nephew, Michael Peterson.
2: Bronson. My name is Charlie Bronson. All my life I wanted to be famous. I knew I was made for better things. I had a calling. I I just didn't know what it is. Wasn't singing. I can't fucking act. Kind of running out of choices, really, aren't we? Charles Bronson, you shouldn't
0: mess with boys that are bigger than you. If you have another one, Bo, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm I'm good. Dad, did you have any left? Because I'm out.
2: Bronson, right, I got a librarian up here, and he's in a lot of trouble.
1: And are we still on the best line or moved on to funniest?
0: We don't treat them really separately. It's just kind of oh, a slash line. You. So if okay, you have then. another one, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So to me, these are lines. It's a quick banter back and forth. It's after his first fight, Bronson says, 20 quid. You're having a fucking laugh, ain't you? And uh, Paul says, Spare me the Oliver Twist routine. You need to build your audience, darling. Bronson says, I gave you fucking magic in there. And Paul is like, you just pissed on a gypsy in the middle of nowhere. It's hardly the hottest ticket in town. <laughs> like, just, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and and then Bronson, and the look on his face, he's like, all right, when's the next one? Nothing he can say after that. <laughs> like, he
0: got him. Dad, do you have any remaining? Uh, No. Any left for you, Bo?
1: Nope.
0: All right. So let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, did you want to start? Sure.
2: Industry. This really kind of launched uh, Nicholas Reffin, kind of a broader audience, uh, led him into the United States. So and it got very positive reviews. Uh, I noted that Roger Ebert gave it a very good review. So... I'm going to give for the industry a little higher ranking uh, 4.0 or for legacy simply because of Refn and because I think it further cemented Tom Hardy as an actor who had larger or better range he had done films, I think he was in Black Hawk Down in 2001, so this wasn't obviously his first film, but I think it kind of opened him up for more roles going forward. So, I'm going to go with the four for the, the public. I'm going to be perfectly honest, I had never heard of this film until now, and part of the reason I enjoyed doing this show is because I get exposed to films that I had not heard of, or that I have to watch films that I think, you know, from my preconceived notion, I would not enjoy and watch them and try to learn what they're about. So I went with a 1.5 simply because I know it's popular. My guess is it's much more popular in the UK than it is in the United States. So I went with a (laughs) 1.5. So overall, uh, 5.5. So for me, I can't
0: get anywhere close to a four on the industry for this one. I, I just don't see it. I think I can give probably a point to maybe a point and a half for Hardy kind of breaking out as a leading man. Even though I don't think he really gets a lot of great leading man parts. Frankly, I've always thought that he's actually a better supporting actor for the most part, but this is probably the one exception where I thought he's done a great leading performance. But this is also before he gets kind of more of a United States household type name. By the time he gets into Inception, he's kind of on a mini run by that point in 2010 or so, so the couple of years after this movie, and he kind of goes on a little bit of a run where he gets some notoriety. But this is the first one where you could say he has some leading man chops, even if I think some of his other choices lately haven't been nearly as good. Refin, I can't say that this is necessarily his breakout because I have to cite Drive as being probably the peak of whatever he had become. But this ultimately gives him the ability to make something like Drive that had such critical and wide audience support. So by getting him on that track, I'll go with a two overall for the industry, but you also said it, the public, I hadn't heard of this film either before it was selected for us. I was not very familiar with a lot of the back catalog of Reffin's work. And I didn't know much about Tom Hardy pre inception. So given that we're film fans, this is kind of a blind spot area for us. I have to go probably a one for the public, and I think that might be a little bit gracious. So it's a three overall for me.
1: Yeah, uh, we're all basically on the same page. Uh, so for legacy of, like, what it did for Tom Hardy to where he shows up often enough in major blockbusters, he then had a series, uh, Taboo. But yeah, what you said about him supporting the character he did in Peaky Blinders, it's like, it is... Phenomenal. Well, everybody on that show is, but what what he brought to that role is just outstanding. And Taboo, to me, it it's, shines a very interesting light to where uh, the vast majority of talent, they have their hand in the pot now as a producer to some extent. In Tom Hardy's case, Taboo, he had a pretty, he might be the story creator or like he, he was really high up on, you know, from being in on the ground floor. That was like his passion project, I think, that he brought to life. But uh, yeah, so it's like as far as that aspect of what it did and then launching that director to do Drive and then uh, God Only Forgives, which was also with Ryan Gosling. Yeah, like uh, I would place it at a three. But then for the audience uh, or the, the public, like I'm being – yeah, I'm being – Heartfelt because it's my favorite movie. So I'm putting it at a 1.5. And to me, that's actually um, I I will make those points up in the impact category that happens next. So because to me, that perfectly ties into it. But yeah, 1.5. So 4.5 overall.
0: So that's a 4.33 average between the three of us. Impact significance. I'll make mine very short and sweet. I don't see it really any differently than the legacy of this film. I think it immediately supports the director and the primary actor to get some bigger and better things and is kind of what an indie film is supposed to do to get them some notoriety so that they get selected for some bigger parts and bigger projects going on, which definitely happened. But other than that, for the industry, the public... I'm, I'm surprised this made as much money as it did given how little reception there seems to be outside of the critic circles for this. So ultimately I'm going to go with a three again for impact significance.
2: Dad, what do you have? For the industry, I went with a f- uh, 3.5. It had great reviews. It didn't, I mean, it got a nomination for Tom Hardy for uh A British award as far as the film industry, but uh, that's about it. I don't know if it had a whole lot. I'm going to give it a little higher for public. I'm going to go with the 2.5. Any time a film can make about 10 times its budget in gross, I think that uh, deserves a little bump up. So I'm going to the 2.5. So I'm going to go with a 6 overall. What award was he nominated for? Because I'm not seeing it in any of the notes here. I thought he was nominated for, um, it kind of led to uh, the, uh, was it BAFTA? Uh, I mean, it
0: could be, but I'm not seeing that on here. That would be in the the page. I think
2: it was the Rising Star Award.
0: Well, that's possible. That is one of the areas that the uh, British film is a little bit better than the Oscars on it. It recognizes like first-time directors or rising stars a little bit better. I think they could expand the Oscars and give a few more categories out to some newer talent to get them some notoriety and recognition. But that's another argument for
2: another day. I'm sorry, I missed your overall number. I had uh, 3.5 and 2.5, so that's a 6. Bo, let's cut to you. For
1: me, as far as the impact significance of it, uh, I would say that as far as what it did for what production or professional impact, I would put it at probably, gosh, I'm still sitting at around a one point five or a two. So let's err on the side of the two then, and and I, I'm saying that just because of you know the career that it did create. For Tom Hardy to where it's like, you know, it has, cre- you know, created somebody else because there is really nobody new that's on the circuit that, you know, if you take Thor away from Hemsworth, he has trouble opening a movie just like everybody else. So since everybody else is having trouble opening their own movies, Tom Hardy, you know, he's done his own TV series and he's a, a great support guy that can bridge off and create a fantastic character on other projects and kind of jump around. Um, as far as the cultural or public significance, I have to uh, give this one a five. And, and I'm saying a five simply because the way that movies are being made today, we have to feed the beast. Like uh, Netflix and hundreds of other streaming channels, they're like desperately trying to keep up with it to where you can – spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create some groundbreaking Game of Thrones TV series. And the moment it comes out, you're going to have a, the diehard fans binge watch that entire series that took hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And one one weekend, one weekend, they've just watched all of it. What should we watch now? So it, it makes it very hard to keep up with that type of rabid appetite of consuming new media and stuff like this. So the reason Bronson is getting a five from me is because that means a true indie filmmaker diehards that like to look up stuff like, uh, what was his name? Uh, William Defoe. Like watch the movie The Loveless. It's a super hyper stylized period piece of like being a greaser biker gang member guy. But that's the role that launched him. And it's like you watch it and you're like, oh, very interesting. That's that starting point. So you can chart back and you can watch to see where like almost a household name where he got his start. But even further than that, people are just like surfing, trying to find good movies to watch. And all of a sudden you come across a good movie you have never even heard of that came out like in the 90s. And you watch it and your mind gets blown because to me. It is impossible to say this is a bad movie. The best I think anybody could do is say it's not for them because the execution, the stylization, the story, they like every note that they wanted to hit. I believe they're happy with the final product. Like we told the story we wanted to tell, we told it in a way that we wanted to tell it. So yeah, it's like it's that hidden gem to where all of a sudden you're caught up on everything new that came out and now you have to start going back and you're going to sift through a lot of carnage and just you know non five-star movies but maybe you come across something like bronson that you're like oh maybe i need to explore more about what happened in this time period and uh, okay you have this movie which one's comparable to it and so on and so forth so yeah I i think the retroactive result is something that uh is going to be very important
0: so that's an overall of uh seven seven yeah all right so that's going to be a 5.33 average between the three of us novelty Bo. let's let you lead off
1: novelty is that the unicorn quality
0: yeah that's a good way of putting it
1: yeah so it has a lot of interesting aspects to where for as Psychotic, unhinged, and whatever other words people want to attach to him may be. He states it uh, in the movie. It's like, but I still have my principles. So that the first time that he really acts out, the reason or the inciting incident for that is because the uh, this guy in the shop comes up to him and says, "Hey, do I need to teach you the sewing?" uh, sewing routine again and he said no we don't do work in long-term prisons which is something that has been a topic of conversation to where it's like you know is prison the new slave farm to be completely blunt about it it's like you're having them do work you're telling them it's vocational training but you're selling this stuff and you're returning a profit off of it right so the fact that that's the point that Bronson's like nah dude I'm in prison. I get it, but I'm not going to do free labor for you. So it's interesting that you have that. And then when the doctors came in and said, "Look, you've been crazy. Take these pills." Like, so he's not like this crazy drug addict guy. He's like, no, dude, I'm not taking the pills. Shove them up your ass." You know, it's like the way that the system wanted to pacify the situation is to just drug this guy up and numb him out of existence but he he didn't want that. So he's like, no, I'm, I'm not taking drugs. I'm here. I'm like, uh, this is who I am. And, you know, I'm not going to take the pills. So the presentation of, you know, what he actually like the stance that he takes, it it was like, well, uh, you know, I kind of side with, with him on that stuff. But then another unicorn quality is that this movie is raw and it's gritty and it's violent and it you know it's about prison life and all, all of this stuff but to me there is this undertone of gay culture that kind of shows up throughout the movie so you have the the guy that owns the uh the strip club right and him he's pretty flamboyant uncle jack offering him a cocktail um and how he says ladies and gentlemen and ladies attire to me that's a it's a very progressive step that it was very ahead of its time to how normalized it made gay culture appear because for as crazy and unhinged as Bronson is, he met this guy that he was five seconds. When the guy's on camera, you assume he's a gay character, but the way Bronson responds to him is he's a human. That's it. Like, There is no aggression towards him being gay or anything like that. And that's how the entire ride went through the movie. The the thing I'll end on is um, when you show nudity in movies, it's yeah, it's very interesting because are you doing some low budget horror movie that sides with the boobs and blood mentality of just chop people up for an hour and a half? And then let's have this girl take her top off and stand in the shower. And we have to have her breast on camera. For me, I'm like, how is that helping the story? What does that, that doesn't do anything for me. Oh, okay. I'm watching this topless chick take a shower. Awesome. But you know, it's not helping the story out. The way that they shown nudity in Bronson was in the very uh, storytelling, thought provoking way to where He's this guy who has spent most of his life in prison. He gets out. He goes to see, see his friend that owns the uh, strip bar. And then you have this long take uh, to where you see the woman topless, but then it cuts away and it cuts to Bronson. And it stays on him for a long take of 30 seconds. And behind him, you have a giant mirror to where, blurry, you can see the, uh, the stripper dancing. So you still know she's naked and stripping and stuff like that. But the center of attention is on Bronson's reaction to that because he's been a guy locked up on the inside for so long. And now he's being exposed to beautiful half-naked woman and he's just gobsmacked by it. And then the very next scene after that, he's, that, that girl is wearing her, her panties out in the day room, like painting her nails. So to me, it's a very tasteful way to use nudity as a vehicle to move the story along opposed to using nudity for the sake of, oh well, we're doing a horror movie, most people watching it are guys who are straight. Let's put boobs on screen and we make money. To me, that's a you know, it's a very different avenue of storytelling. Yeah, so um uh, I don't know. I, I would say it as maybe uh has unicorns at I'd put 4.5.
0: So in thinking about this film, I'm thinking to most of the other prison films that I can think of in my head. You know, the obvious ones come to mind, your Shawshanks, uh, your Escape from Alcatraz, those types of movies. I think for the most part, they fall into one of three categories. There are the wrongfully accused, the innocence type movies where somebody's either, trying to work to get you out of prison or something else to that that effect. There's the prison escape films. And then there's kind of this weird side genre of prison comedies, which is not very, like, profuse, but that's pretty much one of these three all falls
2: into it. The longest yard.
0: Sure. Okay. I was thinking more of the Will Ferrell movie, uh, like, we all go to prison or something. Get hard. Something like that. But anyway... The point being that I don't remember any prison movie that had somebody that was unapologetic for being in prison that is somewhat of a character study without giving any specific detail as to the reasoning behind this character and leaving it open for the interpretation of the audience. And so that to me represents somewhat of a standalone quality of this movie I also think it looks unique for prison films. I think the Hardy portrayal is an unusual version of somebody in this type of mental state. This is a character unlike just about anything else that we'd see on screen. And I do want to give them credit for never giving any additional meaning behind Bronson's behavior.
2: They just kind of leave it as a standalone. So I had an 8.5. All right, so from the violence aspect we can go back to the 1930s and public enemy with Cagney we can look at Helter Skelter from the 70s so it's not novel to have violence and it's not novel to have prison films although in this particular case I'm giving it points up for novelty because what is the most vulnerable position any human can be in? A relationship? Naked. Because you're ex- completely exposed to the environment and everybody's senses. And the reason why Tom Hardy has to be naked in various scenes is because he is completely open and exposed to the public and you get to see him at his very basis. You're the the lowest common denominator. His point of this is who he is without any manifestation of coverage or anything about it. This is who he is and he is a violent, evil person. And the only way you can portray By him being naked in the film. And that concept to me was novel. Because, I mean, when people dream and they have dreams about being naked. And it's usually because they're experiencing some level of vulnerability. So I went with a 6.5 for novelty for that reason I gave it bumps up from where I thought it was originally and so that's where I am classicness dad will let you lead off your category all right we tend to go with a, or start with a 7 and go up or down from that and it's violent it's probably the violence is probably over the top but for what it is it's not unclassic for what it's portraying. The problem I'm going to have is going to be kind of odd, but he uses a particular word, which is more common within British vernacular than American vernacular. I I have actually witnessed women going, Oh, the idea that that fucker would do use that word, that C word, they'll go on and on using fuck. And That's okay, but the C word is not. That gives it marks down for classicness. So anything I would go, I'm going to go with a 6.5 for classicness because half of the public just cannot stand that word. Bo, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so as far as the classicness of it, not in the classics overall comparing it to godfather but i'm saying a classic prison movie what other movie hits at this unapologetic level to where it's raw and stripped down that's why um, i would actually give it a nine because when you reference prison movies you have like you said you have the usual suspects this is off doing its own thing and yeah it's the language and to me another uh, very non-pc aspect of the movie is wh- which is interesting though but because i'm kind of waffling on it but when they're shooting in the uh, mental asylum and kind of the way that the patients are you know interpreted i'm like i can see how cancel culture would just their heads would explode over that scene so yeah like like i've experienced people having these extreme manic things so there's a lot of aspects to it to where i'm like this is not politically correct but in the realm of like you know until that certain date and a lot of uh comedians have this non-political correctness nature about them so when you go into the show you're like all right this is going to be edgy, you know, and that's how you would advertise it to your friends. Like, trust me, this is like, it's going to hit a few nerves, but you know, it's, it's a crazy ride. So because of that nature, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's intense. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be. He's not trying to be the hero. He's not trying to be a good guy. So you experience these non-political correctness you know, situations. And I'm like in today's age with cancel culture, it's almost refreshing. I actually enjoy being in, you know, these type of environments from time to time, just because of kind of how watered down the rest of my experience in public has become. So to watch a movie, you know, that that crazy, that intense, and that unapologetic, I'm like, it adds to it. If you want to watch a crazy prison movie, turn on Bronson. Like this, hands down, it's it's insane.
0: So, Dad, your complaint about the word cunt is unbased. The most popular show of two years ago was Ted Lasso. And Roy Kent says cunt all the time. And he's probably one of the best TV characters of the last five years. So I don't think there's really a backlash to this. I think people will have much more of an issue with the broad Violent scenes of this than they would anything to do with the language. So I don't think this has po- aged poorly. I don't know if it h- was ahead of its time as far as what it was. If it gets points for that, it's probably in novelty and not in classicness. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know if this thing is timeless. So I went Maybe with a. Maybe straight- I just spend
2: more time with older women.
0: Or you are a little bit oversensitive and trying to make yourself seem woke.
2: Oh, gee, thank you. Well, uh, on that note, fuck you.
0: You're welcome. Anyway, I went with a straight seven on this one. So that gives us a 7.5 average between the three of us. Rewatchability, we let our guests usually lead off this category. So, Bo, is this a 10 for you?
1: For me, uh, I would say 10. Uh, I've seen it almost 20 times the the night I introduced it to my father. Uh, when the credits started rolling, uh, he said, "Damn, I, you can actually hit play again, and I'll watch it again with you." And that is not the first time I've had that response. Like it hits people, and they're like, "Wait, like, what just happened?" You know. So it's like they, it's such, it's almost like watching Crank with Jason Statham, but such like an adrenaline fueled thing that has an interesting storyline that you want to experience it again to really make sense of everything that just happened.
2: This has got to be for rewatchability. It's got to be the right group of people has to be the right frame of mind. Um, Not everybody is going to find it entertaining. I'm going to go with a six because there, it, it has to fit within a certain space for watching a film for me, because I tend to watch, in conjunction with others within my house. And I think there's going to be problems associated with it because of the nature and subject matter.
1: So um, uh, I actually have a question. So going into the rewatchability, does recommending the movie kind of come into that score? Um, cause if, cause if anybody says anything about watching a prison movie, You're like, oh, well, have you heard of Bronson?
0: I don't think we've ever considered that portion of it, but maybe. I'd have to think on it. It doesn't immediately come to mind as as something of that, more of, is this something that usually I want to rewatch? It's probably our most subjective category. Instead of trying to bring in objective criteria, even though every one of these has a subjective nature to them. But usually rewatchability has to do, he always mentions it as the comfort food category. What are the movies that I will gravitate back to the most often? Because they're either favorites of mine or I can find something new in them or there's something that I can easily rewatch without having a problem when I need, you know, a boost of something else or that I'm going to be the most fascinated by. So that's usually what the category has been
1: (laughs) Yeah, so Bronson is not very, um, doesn't really lift your spirits all that much.
0: (laughs) For me, this was a difficult film to kind of get into. I had a difficult time trying to connect with any of the characters. They seemed so foreign to me. And I don't tend to be somebody that's very voyeuristic in how I watch things. I usually have to find something to relate to. Also, the subject matter material made it a little bit hard to connect to. But as you mentioned before, Bo, I don't think this is something that if you're a a film fan can go unappreciated. I can respect what they do in the film, even if it's not something that I think that I personally would connect to and revisit as a result of that. And so because it's a tight 90 minutes, which I I think does raise things because I think I've mentioned it on the show before, the Roger Ebert quote, a good movie can never be too long and a bad movie can never be too short. Having a nice 90 minute movie that tells a full story sometimes instead of a three hour slog over something that you're not connecting to does make the quality just rise a little bit more uh, because you don't have to sit through some of these duller moments. I don't think that this movie has a lot of downbeat moments. It's, it's pretty much all driving action throughout the course of the film. There's always something that's within a minute or two of something else happening or exploding or something else that's going on. And because this is, I would say, probably one of Tom Hardy's best performances, at least that I've seen, I'll give it a 3.5 overall. And so that'll put it at a 6.5 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 80% for Google users and a 74% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an average audience score of 7.7. So to repeat the categories, we had a 4.33 for Legacy, we had a 5.33 for Impact Significance, a 6.5 for Novelty, a 7.5 for Classicness, a 6.5 for Rewatchability, and a 7.7 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 37.86, 37.86, and placing it on our list, between Idiocracy and Dodgeball.
1: Which, those are both great, but uh, to me, I, I view Idiocracy is more of a documentary now than a, a scripted feature. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're certainly not the first one to make that comment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, to me, it, it fits right next to it because it's like, hey, you got to check this movie out. But, yeah, once most, most people watch it like once or twice. It's like they get it. All right, let's find something else. But, yeah, that's cool.
2: Everyone views things through their history, their experience and such. And in this particular case, I did criminal defense work for 17 years. So I've seen people like Bronson have existed within society. And it has a different impact to me probably than other people do because I've seen it before.
1: Yeah. And, and I've spent three and a half years in law enforcement and I've interacted with people like this to where it's just on a daily basis, you do not turn your back to that person. (laughs) Like it's just yeah, kind of this innate nature that they have about them.
0: So let's get to remaining questions. I only had one down, so you guys can supplement if you want. But really, one of the things that I thought about during the course of this film was uh, Shawshank Redemption. And specifically, I believe there's a line from Red where he talks about being institutionalized, that you kind of get broken to the system. And because Bronson has been in and out of the system, with only pretty much one year outside of the system since the 70s. He's mostly been in some form of either a psychiatric hospital or solitary confinement or very little interaction with people for decades now. It does beg the question, especially because every time he gets even a little bit of freedom, he acts out or he rebels And it seems to put him back into the same situation. If he needs those guardrails of like a solitary confinement or very limited interaction in order for him to find meaning or purpose in his life. And I don't know if that's the system finally breaking him to the point that they're talking about in Shawshank or if he just is the type of character that needs that structure. But that was really the one true remaining question or one thought that I had coming out of this movie is trying to dig deeper into that character. And even though I know I also said ahead of this, that he has stated that he does not like his time in prison and how much trauma he's gotten from being in prison. There is something that speaks to me that says he probably wouldn't be very comfortable outside of prison either.
1: Yeah, that, that's a very interesting thing on researching um, the actual true story, because at some point uh, he was approached by lawyers. And yeah, it, so it really does begin to have this uh, chicken or the egg type of scenario to where, like, is he where he currently is in a social setting or mentally or however you want to quantify it? Uh, is he the way he is? Because nature and nurture come into effect or is it because of how he went into the system very early and you know he rebelled to me i lean towards him being uh more of the nature and nurture version of it to where it's like he's he was doing bare knuckle fighting when he was a teenager and um he was going into bars getting drunk and fighting anybody and everybody that wanted to Um, He was in a, I think he might've been in a couple uh, street gangs. Um, He's just always had, seems to have had this uh, propensity to lean towards aggression, you know, shoot first, ask questions later type of mentality to where, yeah, the way he reacts, it, it goes back to a lot of people I used to deal with to where some of them, they made a really bad choice do their time they get out other people is like every time I deal with them, like they're just angry at the world. So yeah, I definitely lean towards him just being kind of an agent of chaos and he's a guy that's just doing his own thing. If they set him free from prison, he's going to be running the streets and he's going to carry on that same type of behavior. And I think he would have been doing stuff like that. It may not have been as frequent or severe to the um simply because when they put him in isolation he was in isolation for what 36 out of 44 years or something like a massive substantial amount of time was spent in solitary confinement that will definitely have very adverse effects on the brain and um that i think would definitely agitate and add to his already pre-existing condition
0: Well, thank you very much for being on with us, Bo. We appreciated having you. Again, for everybody that wants to find your movie, The Great Awakening, was it 2021 that it debuted or was it last year?
1: 2021. Okay.
0: But everybody can find that, at least in the United States, on the free movie app Tubi, and you can find that to watch his work. Anything else you'd like to promote while you're here?
1: That's about it. People can reach me on social media at Mr. Bo Roberts. And um, depending on how you spell it, if it's M-R-B-O-R, then that's more of kind of some of the work I've done on camera. But um, if you spell it out, M-I-S-T-E-R, Bo Roberts, then that's much more of kind of my uh, photography page and like me using Instagram for what IG was intended for it. So um, that's about it. Yeah
0: sounds great. Again, thank you for being with us. We enjoyed having you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Dad, any additional thoughts for the week?
2: No, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying, uh, the idea of, uh, the Oscar season and all the awards being given. And I am, uh, slowly, uh, uh, matriculating through, uh, the various nominees and the various categories and, um, uh, Thank you, Hank Stram. Thank you. On that, that's all I can say.
0: Yeah, I don't have anything really to recommend at this point. I'm kind of in between stuff. I just started my Succession rewatch before the new season comes out in a few weeks, so i got to plug through all of that. I've got a lot of things coming up in the next month that I'm very much looking forward to as far as movies and TV shows coming back. So lots of fun stuff and uh, we've got several good movies coming out the next few weeks that I'm excited for as well. We have Steve Jobs next week. We have the big Lebowski after that. And then we have a, I don't know, probably little known film in the United States, but the largest grossing film in Japan the week after that. So a lot of uh, different and eclectic stuff so far to start the year, but definitely stay with us. And, uh, That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. And the winner is next week. We will be discussing our annual 2023 Oscars predictions and our annual bet. You won't want to miss that one. So make sure you're subscribed to the feed to get that episode. Please like, follow, rate, and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at G-Mode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.